This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello everyone, this is The Ranch Ferry. You're listening to Impact Outdoors podcast. And uh, hang on, because it's going to get crazy. I say crazy stuff. So it should be interesting, so don't leave. Stay tuned. I tell people all the time I'm not an 80% person. I can't do 80%. The other 20 might matter. So I go down and figure it out. And I've been fortunate. Dr. Ed Ashby, who did the Natal study, is a friend of mine. There's a guy named Big Mike Tanaka in Louisiana. He prefers to be left alone in his own place and not be known. But he helped me a ton in the background, helping me understand what the hell I was seeing. And then recently, Daryl Barnett, who's a DOD scientist, lives in Austin. He made rail guns, anti-tank penetrators, and worked on some rocket stuff. And to get somebody with 25 years of experience shooting things at Mach 5, they got to be stable. They have to hit the target, too. Like, you shoot at a tank and you miss, they shoot back. So it's a little bit bad for your health. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode here at the Impact Outdoors podcast. And we've got another great show lined up for you this week from the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit we did this spring out at the Warren Ranch here in Texas. And we've got none other than Troy Fowler, a.k.a. The Ranch Fairy, on this week's episode. And, man, it was such a pleasure spending a few days with Troy, um, learning a ton from him in both the hunting world and the fishing world. Um, He is just so well-rounded in the outdoors and really brings such a common sense approach, but a very technical approach to the world of bow hunting and is making such a huge impact there. Uh, it was really cool to get to sit down to him and uh, hear about what he's got to say about you know all the things he's doing um, on his YouTube channel and uh, some really cool fishing stories from um, his 30 plus years fishing here on the Texas coast and, and around Texas for uh, saltwater and freshwater fish. So this was a great interview. Can't wait for you to hear it. So let's jump right into this week's show with the Ranch Ferry. 
This episode was recorded live at the 2023 Hunt Fish Podcast Summit. Podcasters and guests from across the country come together to talk about their passions for hunting, fishing, and conservation. This year's summit is brought to you by Waypoint TV, Ron Hoover Marine of Galveston, Spot Stalker Guide Service, the Wild Sheep Foundation, Galveston Fishing Company, Captain Experiences, and Badger Claw Outfitters. We are here live at the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit at the beautiful Warren Ranch, and um, I'm joined by the Ranch Ferry today. Yes. How are you? I am the Fisher Cooperative here. I like the fish here. I think I got 16 <laughs> yesterday, two sixes, and, you know, messing around. Yeah, when we got here yesterday, I was like, go play. Yeah, <laughs> We're right. getting set up. You recognize I'm 12 years old. <laughs> I'm 54-year-old man in a 12-year-old body, brain at least, anyway. The body's the wore out, but... We're, we're sitting here at the table, like, organizing some stuff, and uh, there was, like, five or six of us over here, and uh, I seen you on the other side of the lake down there, and I just see, like, this five, six, seven-pound bass just come flying out of the water, yep. and I was, like, yelling everybody, and everybody went to the door, and within five minutes, I was the only one in here. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. They were all that in was the water. The second cast of the day, and a fish was probably over six. She was pushing seven. She was fat, and I was like, okay, I, this place is all right. I'll yeah. hang out with these people. <laughs> I love fishing. This is a uh, me too, and this is a uh, this is a good place to do it. So, um, but uh, you know, thank you for coming to this. Well, thanks I mean, for inviting you me. You know, I reached out and um, didn't know what schedules look like with people, and and uh, you were like, I'm there. Yeah, right. So, um, I want to talk about a bunch of different stuff today with you. Um, most everybody knows you from the bow hunting world um, and and doing what you do there. So, but you're also like. This incredible fisherman. I'm like, you post so much cool content on fishing. I, need I to, didn't know that about you until I, I, chip off until, um, I think Aaron Warburton had told me from the hunting public. He's like, man, you need to get with him and, and do some fishing and stuff. And uh, No, I love it. I grew up fishing on the Texas coast. I've spent 20 years fishing in the surf for sharks and jacks. And I caught a 9-6 tiger. I caught a bunch, a couple of big bulls. Stopped doing that. Like, that was enough for me for some reason. I started yeah. light tackle fishing in the surf, which is a very frustrating and rewarding experience back-to-back. Back. I mean, it's it's so bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's unforgiving. It's a hell of a place to fish. It's hard on you, hard on the gear. And the, it's just a great challenge, and I like the challenge. Like, yeah. I like to have a, some kind of goal. I'm going to catch a 10-pound trout in the next five years. That's my next goal, a 10-pound speckled trout. Yep. Just make sure you're not dumping eight ounce lead weights down it. Like yeah, the guys well, I could there. catch one that was ten inches long that way, but <laughs> shoot. Well, you know the one thing I love about what you do, and what is lacking in most things I see in the world today, is common sense thinking. I try, and I don't know why people don't think about that more. But you know, I'm not a bow hunter. Like I, I shoot a, I sh- I've got a crossbow and stuff. I just mm-hmm. never got into. I never had a mentor like take me into down that path. Mm-hmm. I rifle hunt most of the time yep. um, with me and my kids. And and um, but you know, watching your content and how you do it. I mean, it just when you talk about all the things that you're probably going to get into here in a second, it's just it's like when you think about it, it's like this all makes perfect sense. Well, I've listen. I I wish I was smart, and I'm not. I have a science mind, and I quickly pick things up, and I tell people all the time I'm not an 80% person. I can't do 80%. The other 20 might matter. Right. So I go down and figure it out, 
and I've been fortunate. Dr. Ed Ashby, who did the Natal study, is a friend of mine. There's a guy named Big Mike Tanaka in Louisiana. He prefers to be left alone in his own place and not be known, but he helped me a ton in the background, helping me understand what the hell I was seeing. Yeah. And then recently, Daryl Barnett, who's a DOD scientist, lives in Austin. He reached out to me. He made rail guns, anti-tank penetrators, and worked on some rocket stuff. That's cool. And to get somebody with 25 years of experience shooting things at Mach 5, they got to be stable. Yeah. They have to hit the target, too. Like, you shoot at a tank and you miss, they shoot back. So it's a little bit bad for your health in the war game. And those people have, I kind of knew what I was doing, and they've really said, no, no, no. I mean, you understand what you see. We want you to know why. And so back to your question um it appears that the human form prefers confirmation bias over logic so what confirmation bias is is you have a bias and you want it confirmed Mm -hmm. and currently with the way social media works once you get on your feed it feeds you what you want confirmed yep and then logic goes out the door and i can't do 80 percent. i can't so when I figured out that there was a hole in the archery world where some things you just can't fight. You can't fight physics. You can't fight math. You can bitch and moan and want what you want, and that is fine. I was just telling somebody over here who's an elk hunter, and I said, you got to decide if you want to kill an elk or you want to shoot at him. And you're not there yet. Yeah. And he looked at me like I was a Martian. <laughs> and I just did. It's a frame of mind. I'm going to go down and we'll come back. The current rifle world is tore up with a 6.5 piece of crap, overblown. It's still a 140-grain bullet, and the 6.5 has been around. The Swede was around. I have a 264 Win Mag. It's not magic. I'm sorry, a 300 Weatherby and a 300 uh, Win Mag will outperform that gun, logically speaking, Mm -hmm. all the time. (laughs) There's no... Debating putting that 180 or 200 grain bullet downrange out west, and you're shooting a deer gun. Yeah. But they want to do it, and they want that confirmed. Fine. Do whatever. But it just – and I'm not, I'm not afraid to find out I'm wrong as well. Yeah. And I, we have found out a lot of things I was wrong about. Yeah. You make assumptions. You go test it. And so you know you're right. It's just that logical. Mm-hmm. It's just that logical. So how did you get to this point where you were so engaged in this, I guess, technical aspect of bow hunting? Like, did you start bow hunting when you were younger? Like, how did that, oh, all, since I was 12. that all happen? Since I was 12. So when I started bow hunting, the bow shot 180 feet per second, even a compound. We had a little flipper rest. That was all they had. And we shot aluminum arrows, and we didn't know what they weighed, but they weighed 600, 650 grains. That's what you had. Mm-hmm. I am old enough that the Thunderhead replaceable broadhead was a big thing. It was a revolution. That's how old I am. So before that, it was all hand-sharpenable stuff. It was all cut-on-contact, you know, grandpa-style broadheads. And we shot through everything. We never thought we were going to leave an arrow in an animal. Yeah. And... So I've been doing it long. So what tripped the trigger was I killed a Pope and Young deer in 2008. I quit deer hunting. I just don't care. Then I had kids. 
took them hunting, blah, blah, blah. And that's more rewarding for me now. It's deer hunting and Absolutely. all that. I don't care. I'm old. But I love shooting pigs. And I started focusing on big ones. I get to the point now where I just pass. Like pigs come in. Because I'm hunting a big one, I won't shoot them because I don't want him to know. I'll let them eat for 40 minutes and they walk off and I just leave. Yeah. Because I'm hunting big ones. Mm-hmm. And at one time I was 50% kill. 50% recovery on big ones. And I'm 17 yards. I'm at a deer feeder. This is not a trick show. It yeah. may have been my 12th hunt after him. And I finally get him in front of me, and I don't get him. Mm-hmm. I was getting half an arrow in him. And it was pissing me off. I'm not an 80% guy. Yeah. I have guns. I've got a 44 Magnum lever gun at 17 yards. That little thing will smash them. I could do that, right? I have gun guns. I have ARs and all that stuff. And I just said, okay, so what I'm doing is not working. I got every broadhead platform on earth. And I found Dr. Ed's study. It was in printed form back then. So a 30-year study on arrow penetration started in the 70s. Mm. He killed two rhinos with a longbow and shot a bunch of big stuff and started studying arrow penetration and what worked. I read through the whole study. It's exhaustive. You should read it. Everybody should read it. And I built an Ed Arrow, which was 650 grains with a three-inch long single-bevel broadhead. And I started whacking them. If I hit them right, you're going to make mistakes and hit them weird. Something's going to go wrong. Got it. Yep. When I hit them right, it goes right through them, and they're dead. And I went, oh, (laughs) that's a completely different experience. I have all this history. And so I started the channel and I did, on a whim. No yeah. business plan. I figured no one would listen to it. You didn't, you didn't have no plan what you were going to do? Zero plan. <laughs> I just started filming on my phone, acting like a crazy guy saying stuff is just <laughs> off the wall things about random and sundry broadheads that aren't worth a damn. <laughs> and focusing on lethality. Mm-hmm. And the most lethal platform. Like I said, I just told this guy, I said, you got to decide how bad you want to kill an elk or you want to shoot at them. They're not the same. They're not the same. Yeah. Two different mindsets. Um, so, I mean, out of that, I mean, you talk about a lot of different things. I don't know if a lot of people, everybody knows what all that means, but I know FOC, um, you talk a lot about your shaft length on your arrows and how that can affect, you know, Safety for one thing, you know, because mm-hmm. you're talking. You don't I cut your fingers about, off. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. doing that stuff. But um, I know you and you and Turner were talking about that earlier. About most people probably don't think about if the arrow is going straight through the air, and you were talking about the wobbling effect and mm-hmm. stuff, and then how that weight, that forward weight, can help pull the arrow mm-hmm. instead of the arrow pushing Correct. through. Now, kind of talk about that because I mean, that's I think that's a lot of. Th- I mean, I know you're trying to drive that fact home through your videos, but, I mean, it's something that a lot of people I don't think think about. So I'll use a gun example, and then we'll back into it. So X-Bullet's kind of considered the, you know, the ultimate hunting full metal jacket. I mean, some bitches, don't, they don't stop. But at long range, they don't tend to open. Yeah. So you might shoot a softer bullet out there at 500 yards, 400 yards, and let it slow down and do its job and not blow up. Out of a big rifle, right? 338 or something. 
you're delivering this very high mass projectile that penetrates completely through the animal for maximum lethality. Right. When we build a high forward to center arrow, which means you have a lot of weight in the front. So my standard platform, I have 300 of 620 grains in the front of the arrow. And my big hunting arrows that I was just showing, Turner, have 450 in the front. And what you have is a tremendous amount of inertia in a very small space with a tail on it. Mm-hmm. So the, the shaft's not pushing the point. A lighter arrow, the shaft is pushing the point. You're driving a nail. If you hit the nail a little wonky with your hammer, it goes sideways. Yep. And that's exactly what happens on animals. Yep. But if you put all this inertia in the front, the inertia says, nah, I'm only three inches long. You can't make me move. And it keeps going. It blows through. And it's a Barnes X bullet. Mm-hmm. And under the, under the correct conditions, and it pedals back, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> when you start to reframe your bow hunting conversation in your own head, are you trying to be maximally lethal or keep your friends happy and look cool and shoot what's common? Confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. I've, I've lost it. I'm, I don't care anymore. I want what kills things more than I want. And I want my subscribers, I want people who listen to me to kill stuff. I've got, I post pictures all fall. I've shot a deer in five, seven, ten years probably. But I get all these great pictures of guys who say, I had this big buck come in quarter and two and I was shooting 620 grains with a sing- that single bubble that you make and they're sending me pictures of the humerus just cut smooth in half. Shattered shoulder blades. That deer would not probably live, die. Yeah. But they were able to break right through the bones. Aaron did it. Aaron Warbritton shot a huge 10-point, like physically big Midwest deer. It's a big deer, horn-wise. But the the body on the deer is huge. One of them corn-fed deer that y'all get up there. For you folks in the Midwest, I shoot 90-pound deer. So, (laughs) right? We shoot 19 of them, but whatever. (laughs) And... He hit the humorous ball dead center. He got 14 inches of penetration, went all the way to the other side, and the deer went 60 yards. He sent me the video five minutes after he hit the deer and said, what do you think? And I said, the deer is dead. You broke the shoulder. And he said, everybody else says it's a, it's a long tracking job. I said, no, no, deer's right down the hill. He said, we called a dog. I said, fine. That's smart. In the video, if you watch Aaron's hunt, they go on top of a hill, and the dog sticks his nose up. He's already got the deer because the wind's blowing uphill. Yeah. They cut the dog loose and barp, right there, 65 yards. Yeah. And they cut the, the humorous ball. Looks, It's about three-quarters of the size of a lemon, and it's cut smooth in half. 640, I think, is what he shoots. Single-bevel broadhead, bare shaft tuned. He's pretty meticulous. Yep. And he, he takes care of business with his arrows, and he hadn't stopped shooting it. He just keeps pounding stuff. But that's been probably my most rewarding thing. I consider those guys kids. They're almost as young as my children. Ted, definitely. Right? And Jake. Right? I think Zach, too. Because my oldest is 26. And before I met them, they would always shoot a deer and then get everybody and get the lights and go tracking. And I don't think they were doing it for – to make runtime go up. I think that's what they expected. Mm-hmm. Now they shoot them and they put their hands up because they see that arrow hit them right in the vital V and they know the deer's dead. Yeah. 
And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. of course it's dead. Zach talked about that. I heard him talk about that on a podcast. And he said, yeah, it's just a completely different experience, you know. However, he framed it. But there's yeah. been a couple of them where Zach, I saw Zach shot a deer on the ground, in the grass, shoots, and he just literally goes. And the deer's in the background running. <laughs> and then you see it go, foop, and go down. Because he knows he hit it right, and he knows his aero platform's going to fail. Mm-hmm. Maximum lethality. And that's good for the sport. It's good for our future. Yeah. It's good on video if you had to fight with regulatory people about lethality. Mm-hmm. And you can just show them over and over these deer going 37 yards and collapsing. Yeah. I think, um, have you done Have you done any stuff over in Africa? I went in, to Namibia in 2008, and I'm going this fall for a, a buddy of mine just going to do a green rhino hunt. Wow. I know. I think I heard you talking about that um, before on something on your show or another podcast or something. But um, the animals over there, I mean, they're, they're, some of their body structures are different and stuff like that. I mean, you know, like like pigs, like talking vitals. Mm-hmm. You know, pig versus whitetail is to me a lot different just because of the shoulder blade on some of these bigger pigs and stuff. Correct. But with what you're talking about, as long as you can get it on there. It's not a problem. It just goes right the through. The pigs are really weird. Pigs have six uh, lobes in their lung, not five. Everything else does. Pigs are weird. Pigs are weird, and they have very tall, short, vertical lungs that are right. If you hit the crease, you're you're probably not finding the pig, unless it's quartering away. Yeah. Broadside, if you hit the crease, it's 50-50 recovery. They're giant trash cans with no lungs. They're not intended to sprint. They're plows. They're tractors, yeah. right? Tractors go slow and rip trees down. That's what they are. So they don't need the cardiovascular system, whereas a pronghorn has a huge kill zone because they haul ass all the time. They're sprinters, and deer are somewhere in the middle. The African animals, um, I don't know that they carry their vitals that further forward. I think they're just big, and I, I – I'm trying to figure out how to do this. I'm probably going to have to do it on some dead pigs. I think the challenge with the bigger stuff is blade erosion. Hmm. So imagine if you shot a full metal jacket at a 700-pound animal and hit it pretty good. It's not going to be as lethal as a bullet that expands because it's just going to do more damage. Even fragmentation is pretty good past the thoracic balls because pieces go everywhere. But I think the blades on the, some of the cheaper and more common, probably 80% of the broadheads, can't handle the impact on a big animal. And they dull. So the animals are tough. I mean, you got to think about that. I mean, it's like cleaning a pig. I will sharpen my blades before I start. And usually about 20 minutes later, You're I'm having to... Sharpen them again or change blades or whatever. Yeah, right. exactly. Just because they're so freaking tough. Right. And they have a lot of mud on them and the hair's really, really coarse. And then their rib structure is very narrow. To anybody listening, please, next time you get a rack of ribs in front of you, look at the meat, how wide the meat is between the ribs. And three quarters of an inch? Yeah. You're hitting bone. You're hitting rib cage with whatever broadhead platform you have out there. If it dulls on those ribs, then when it gets into the lungs and the cardiovascular system, it can't cut. Yep. So then if it can't cut, they're tough. Well, that's all BS. I'm a respiratory therapist. I cadaver for six months. You pull them out of the stuff, and you work on your cadaver. It's just arteries, veins, lungs, liver. If it doesn't cut, it's a longer day. 
Yeah. Dull broadheads don't. And I so I think the big stuff. I mean, Helen Paulas are big if you're from Texas. Mm-hmm. They look like big deer. They're bigger than you think. Tommies are small. But a kudu's five or six hundred pounds. You know, three quarters of an elk. Yeah, and I mean, you got to think just the 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 bone structure, just bone structure, just basic facts. Bigger everything, and you're shooting the same crappy broadhead that dulls on impact. You shoot, and so if you shoot a four blade, two of the blades get damaged. So you're fifty percent lethal. Yeah. Once it enters the thoracic cavity, this is we're talking about breaching four inches of stuff, and the broadhead's dull. They're tough. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Your broadhead failed. It's not lethal. It's that logical. Yep. So, doing all this stuff, and I know you, you worked a lot with the Ashby Foundation, um, helping helping out with that and stuff. Still do, and, yeah. And, um, but you've also kind of moved over and working with Sirius Archery now. Mm-hmm. Talk about a little bit about that um, movement over there and... And what you're doing there, because, I mean, I know you've got some test kits and stuff for, mm-hmm. for people and, and kind of what you're trying to do with them. So it's easy to find me. Just type in Ranch Ferry Store. But Sirius is S-I-R-I-U-S, Sirius Archery. That's my sponsor. We have broadheads and arrows and fletched arrows and test kits and all that stuff. <coughs> and when you fall off this train of lethality and a higher forward to center arrow and a heavier stuff, you had to find a vendor that would do it. None of the majors want to play. They're selling a ton of arrows because of my impact. Yeah. People decide they want to do this and then they buy whatever. But I did couldn't find a vendor who wanted to jump off the train and Sirius happened to be in the right spot at the right time. They make great arrows, some of the most consistent shafts I've ever shot. And just arrows wise, we have micros and standards and all price ranges and all kind of customization if you want it that way. And then what I wanted was a... Uh, a redneck test kit for people in the backyard because most people don't <clears throat> have a bow press. Mm-hmm. Back to the firearms, it is wise if you buy a new rifle to go shoot about four different brands of ammo and just accept what shoots great. If it's Remington core locks, shoot them. Yeah. If it's the high-end stuff, shoot them. But don't decide you're going to shoot Nosler trophy grade and it shoots a one-and-a-half-inch group. And, and if you're shooting core locks and they go in the same hole, just go with the accurate. Go with the accurate, right? Because if you back up, that inch and a half becomes two and a half, becomes three and a half, becomes five, 500 yards. You're talking six inches, and it's coming out of the gun that way. Yeah. <laughs> you can't stop it because it doesn't like the gamble. So I came up with this idea to have two different spines of arrows. So that's the flex of the arrow. And then a bunch of different field points. And you stand seven yards away from a piece of paper. No fletchings. And you shoot the 300 spine or whatever. And if it tears real bad, you change the point. If it tears, keeps tearing, change the point. Keep changing the point. And all of a sudden, they'll be better. You write those down. Set them aside. And then you grab the next, might be a 250 spine, a stiffer shaft. And you walk through that again. And you cut those down to the seven, five that look better. And then you keep tinkering. I have videos on all over my channel about that. I have one called the bear shaft tuning process. Yeah. And it's 30 minutes long, and it's literally you need to do a step, stop, do it, push the button, keep going. Have your phone with you, watch it one time, and then go out and do it. 
It's like a cooking show for men. It's like a cooking show with arrows. That's exactly right. And I was trying to figure out how can some guy with his bow sit in his backyard and get perfect arrow flight, as perfect as they can get, the best arrow flight they could possibly get so that the platform is accurate. So what I'm doing in the gun example is I'm bending the ammo. I'm hand-loading. And when you change the point, it flies different. Mm -hmm. It bends different. You add weight, it bends more. You lower the weight, it bends less. It's just a fact. They're not the same flying projectile. Yeah. And I want, if you have really great arrow flight, then you're more accurate, and then at impact, the arrow's really driving on the shot line, in line, straight on line. It's not a little left when it hits, mm -hmm. and which makes it go more left. Again, if you set your nail and don't set it straight and set it to the side and hit it straight, it's, it's going to fall over. Yeah, I tend to have a lot of problems with that sometimes when I'm putting a fence up or something. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the trick where you put the nail backwards in the claw? No. Okay, so you put a nail in the claw backwards. You put the head against the back of the head of the hammer. The claw's going over. You put the nail out the back and you slam it into the fence and it sets it. Huh. I got to look this up. Yes. It's, I went, you got to be kidding. I've been 54 years on earth and I just saw that. It's more wisdom from the range fairy here. Mm -hmm. So... Full of crap. <laughs> Completely. Well, that's cool. I mean, I mean, I think that so many people now with the advent of how popular YouTube has gotten and stuff and, and, and this, I mean, they're, you can tell just by looking at your channel how many people follow you and, and, and see these videos, just like what Aaron and them guys do with THP. Um, people want this information so badly, you know. And like you said, we're being fed so much stuff on social media just to drive sales and, and things like that that may not be the best option most of the time. I tried to – I didn't monetize my channel for three years. I didn't get a sponsor for until two and a half years ago. I wanted to stay out of the game, and but nobody provided the right stuff. So I said, fine, I'm going to have to find an arrow vendor who will provide me the right stuff. You're not 80%? I'm, I can't be 80%, and I wish I could have done it without it, but because I could really say crazy crap. <laughs> but I already say crazy crap. But um, I had to find somebody to get the right stuff, and it's the right stuff. It's the, the test kits are really, really helpful to people just in your backyard. It's currently March. You've got plenty of time. Get out there, and instead of trying to outform, trying to make your gun shoot bad bullets because mm -hmm. your form's bad, why don't you just shoot the bullets that shoot out of your gun and then learn to shoot better yeah. with really good bullets yeah. that shoot straight. And you can, instead of shooting and trying to keep your nose to the left and your left eye just barely open but not a little bit and hold your mouth like that, why don't you just get an arrow that flies awesome? And then it takes all that away. And you mm -hmm. can just shoot your bow and shoot accurately. And then it's going to increase your lethality or be better in the woods because... Everybody's better on the range. It's like golf. Warming I, up. I'm pretty good warming up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't get into shooting firearms until much later. Just never was around it, you know. I was all fishing all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, it would always take me three or four shots to get comfortable at the range setting because I'm just like, man, it's like all these guys are around. So I'm sitting here, and they're all just – Half of them don't know what they're doing. Yeah, it's like, I'm new to this. Like, uh, I think I'm doing this the right way. But um, 
but now you know i've been doing it for like 20 years i guess and and um i feel i feel comfortable shooting mm-hmm. um but it's been really cool to see my kids i've been able to start them early in life and I try to that. give that opportunity to them i had that too it's blown me away how good they are mm-hmm. and you know my kids are kids so like they're spastic and all over the place especially my boy i mean he's like yeah, he's a boy. Bouncing off the walls. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the first time he shot, um, my daughter's just, girls are just great at, at so many things. They do what you and tell them. They, 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 they listen so well. They listen. Boys don't and listen. And he don't, you know, he just, you never know if he, he listens to everything. But the first time that he got to shoot a rifle, um, we shot a single shot 22 cricket, you know, just to play with. And um, I let him shoot another 22. And then... Um, Two years ago, I let him shoot a 300 blackout for the first time, which is the rifle I got for the kids to use. And um, I love that little gun, little Ruger Rancher Edition or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and um, dude, he was putting them hole through hole. Just, mm-hmm. just, I was like, I'm not that good. And you're sitting here four and a half, five years old and just, just. Yeah, that's how I started my kids out. I started out on 22s, and then I remember being a kid, and I had a steel-butted lever-action 3030 with iron sights. It was my first hunting gun, and it, I remember being 12, and it felt like it kicked like a damn mule, right? And I literally had to spend time as an adult getting over recoil pucker factor, right? Literally lay down with my 264, which absolutely will push, mm. and say, you got to eat the recoil because you can't beat the recoil. You never beat the recoil. Eat the recoil and lay there and just get calm. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So I started my kids out on 22s, and then the first rifle I bought for hunting was a single-shot H&R weigh with a bull barrel. It weighs 11 pounds. The Man. gun weighs 11 pounds. It's a big, fat barrel. You can watch. <laughs> when you shoot prairie dogs, you watch them explode in the scope. That's how stable it is. Well, they had never experienced recoil. We're shooting at the ranch. I've got oh, I've got pretty hard soft uh, soft point bullets made by Hornady. I don't remember what they are, but they tend to go through the deer. Mm-hmm. Seventy five yard shots. It's a perfectly practical deer stand gun, and when it doesn't recoil and they've never felt recoil, they don't miss. Yep. And so then the, when they went to a seven mag, they have all these reps. Of guns not really kicking. And I say, this gun's going to blow your damn arm. And I blow them out of the you're going to fly back. And they go, they pull the trigger and go, come on, Dad. Right? You always want to overshoot that. And they're phenomenal shots now. Yeah. With anything you handle. But it was all those reps with no recoil. And then when they got to be 12, or, I, I started them, I got them to 30-06 with that reduced recoil. Same deal, 75 yards, slower bullet. Mm-hmm. 30 out six doesn't kick, and then I gave them the hot stuff, and they but they'd worked up, and they're better shots than I am. I mean, yeah, they are. I mean, my daughter. I mean, she got her first deer this year, or last this last fall, um, up in Missouri, and like it was nothing. Just, yeah, I mean, 
super excited, obviously. But, yep. I mean, the shot itself um, was not the big deal. We were fighting the sun more than anything. And it right. was a battle that morning. But, but um, you know, just it was just amazing to see um, just how natural that has come to them. And, and they're around the outdoors all the time. I mean, it's just me and my wife and, and just do that with them. And But um, it's cool. So my, I know sec- my second child is like a fish whisperer, too. That's a fish catching this freaking kid. Unbelievable fishing with that guy. I hate fishing with him. Yeah. Oh. Well, well, you need to bring him when you come down to Galveston this summer. Oh, I will. I want to so. come in May. He's coming He's coming home. <laughs> he, he lives in Denver right now, and he's tired of it. He's coming back to Texas. So yeah. we'll book something to have him come with us. Heck yeah. So I know you do a lot of stuff with kids um, at, at the ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about a little bit of that. I mean – I know this is kind of the story of where Ranch Ferry moniker came from mm-hmm. and stuff, but just kind of talk about that and some of the experience you've had down there. So my wife is the eldest of 10 kids, and they the property is her family's. It's 3,000 acres in Victoria, and somehow I ended up becoming the ranch manager. I'm naturally inclined to go down and fix fences. I just can't. The camp's got to look a certain way. Yeah. I can't, it can't be 80%. Nothing can. So I started, I started running the ranch, make sure the scooter runs, fix stuff. I'm pretty handy. I like working on things. And I get a lot of work done for my real job. I'll literally be working on a fence and go, holy crap. And I'm working on a contract that's 29 pages long. And I'll go back to camp and write notes about this. I, this, I realized what I was – it just pops in your head. Like in the middle of the night when you wake up and you solve a problem. Yeah. That happens to me all the time working on a scooter or something. <laughs> so – I run the ranch, and there's 40 nieces and nephews, and by hook or crook, I've got six other kids by dad's leaving, getting divorced. And the sister-in-law say, somebody's got to, can you help me with the boys? Like, they weren't trouble. Yeah. They just need freaking somebody. And I say, yeah, come on. So they come down with me and run chainsaws, and we do all that stuff, and firearms all the time and most of them are over it now they'd rather take you to shoot a pig than do it themselves they'll half cool? the time they go to the ranch with no guns they go down there drink beer and run around and they fix things for me and check a feeder and do this and they oh yeah we saw a bunch of pigs and some deer and some turkeys da, 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 da. we were just screwing around we saw some flowers you know <laughs> we climbed a tree right they just screw around it's cool to see as you get older, you look back on your life and you wonder what kind of legacy you laid down. Because when you die, what's the road you left? Mm-hmm. And is that road worth a damn or is it just you? And I can confidently say it wasn't just me. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I've got, I've got that 223 that I talked about has 30 names written on it from people that have killed their first animal. Every time somebody's the first, I say, oh, if you came and you're on the property, you've got to shoot with, with the 223. You've got to use your name on the gun. You've shot stuff. But currently, that gun only has names on it of people who've never shot an animal. Wow. There's 30 of them. Dang. Friends and in-laws and outlaws and whatever. And that gun's cool. I'm ready to get on the other side of the stock now. But I haven't had a lot of newbies lately. (laughs) Well, Todd has a similar story here with a box call for people that he's done. It's the exact same thing. It's amazing to sit there and look at all the names. Right. He's got on there. Right. It's just that's it's, it's a legacy thing. That gun will be, you know, it's everybody in the family knows about it. And yeah. it's just been super awesome. But it's that's where the that's what 
why I'm happy the ranch ferry went where it went. I'm glad I'm not a hunting channel and it's all about me. The thousands of pictures I get every fall, are f- that's the reward. Yeah. When it gets cold, I'm thinking about throwing a corky. Screw deer hunting. The minute it gets <laughs> waiter weather, I'm thinking about corky time. Everybody's hunting like crazy. And I get nobody's thousands, on the water. Nobody's on the water. And I get thousands of pictures. Bears, moose, Africa, mostly deer. And most of them say, you know, I shot this deer. I've never had this happen. Arrow went right through it, and the deer hopped and walked and fell over 30 yards away. Didn't even act like it was hit. And I'm like, great. Or, and the guys who really, they throw a shot, or the angle's weird, or the deer ducks, and they still break them. They still get their deer. It didn't run off. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, so that's the channel now. I've, I've got... 40 videos planned with some deep science stuff that's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And from a <laughs> fact standpoint, <laughs> suck it up, buttercup. You, you can't beat the physics. Oh, man. Well, I'm I'm loving all this saltwater fishing stuff you've been putting out. And and that's definitely my more my game. That's your bailiwick, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, and – fished freshwater my whole life i got to go to alaska when i was like five or six we went up there and we did i remember doing some halibut fishing stuff like that, that was like my first taste of salt water yep but i don't really i mean i remember going but i don't really remember the experience per se and then um got to f- fish some in the valley and when my aunt and uncle were missionaries down there near um near brownsville mm. and uh but when i got the opportunity to come work for tpwd down here 20 years ago you know, it's a brand new game to me for the most part. Yep. You know, I've been offshore a couple of times on a party boat at Port A and stuff, but do people say the salt gets in your blood? Yeah, no, it's... Holy crap, dude. It's like, like I love going freshwater fishing. I really miss being able to do that as much as I used mm-hmm. to, which I don't get to do hardly any of it anymore, but um, I saw where stuff's so addictive. It's, it's, uh, There's it's, so many I've, species to chase. I've told my wife and every neighbor and every person in the world, I said, if something happens to Julie, I'm going to be in a crappy house in Port Aransas. My hair is going to get long. I'm probably going to pull a couple of teeth because I'm trying to relive the old days of Port Aransas back before it was all purple and orange and stuff. When it was, mm-hmm. everybody had white stripper boots on and all the old guys were smoking cigarettes like, get out of here, you're enough money. And they're all rusting. <laughs> Literally, the people are rusting away. I want to be that like guy. Like the shrimp boats. Like the shrimp boats. And... I will be at the coast so fast, but my whole family, everyone's between Austin and New Braunfels. It's not practical, so I do my best, yeah. but I love wade fishing, and I really, I'm trying to find some guides who really want to fish. I'll grind. I don't care, but I'm trying to find a couple of guides who I can I'll pay for the charters, and if we don't catch anything, if, but they think we're fishing for 30s or 10s i'll grind i will the lakes i fish currently for i'm fishing for 10 pound bass or greater are heavily pressured i average two bites per hour and a half fishing for big ones and i'll be out there six hours Mm -hmm. sometimes i go fun fishing get a square bill and just catch seven and go okay they're still here (laughs) they're still here (laughs) or i'll throw a wacky worm or something just to get over it and then I go back to doing what I'm doing, trying to catch a big one. And I've got a couple of friends. I'm becoming friends with a couple of guides, but I'm still, I'm still think I'm going on the tourist runs. 
not against them. We catch some great fish. I had a seven or seven and three quarter trout last year. I haven't done very well this year, but caught a two thirty inch snook in the ditch in uh, Brownsville last year. That's fun. Wade fishing for snook in the summer is really Most fun. People don't know we have snook in Texas. We have enough. We have a lot. And like and they're practically like they're practical to fish for. Galveston system has quite a few snook in it, we, and nobody fishes for them. I think you could get a live scope and go in the ditches in the in the canals in Corpus, and they're under the docks, just like Florida. Yeah, I think they're there. If they're on the jetties, uh, half a mile away, which they're all over Packery, Mm -hmm. they're available in the surf in the summer. And Brownsville is legit. Wade fishing in the summer form is completely legitimate. Yeah, they're there. It's not an accident. You can fish for snook. Yeah, and and always. You, first time I fished in Florida, um, we, went, we go to the ICAST every year, and we went fishing with my buddy Chris Camps over there, and I think we caught, like, I mean, the snook are like hardheads and pinfish over there. They're mm-hmm. freaking everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then you come back here, and you hear, like, one or two being caught. But we, st- we first started seeing them at work and in our some of our gears and stuff, and, I mean, we were catching some some common and – snook up to like almost 30 inches mm-hmm. in west galveston bay and uh and the tarpon have made a, a big comeback I, I would say big comeback you know i mean i think they've always been some there i mean but the numbers we're, we're seeing more and more of them right you know and whether that's climate change or whatever you want to call it but um you know we got a lot more mangrove snapper in the upper bay system in the last 10 years yep snook and the tarpon i mean that's three big indicators that something's going on why do you think different. the lizard fish showed up I don't know. We've always caught them up up in Galveston. Some years, them. some years we'll see a ton of them. Some years we won't catch a lot of them. We have, they've showed up, you know, from Corpus down to the down to Baffin in tremendous numbers, and I wonder if it's the it's moving the croakers out. I don't know. They just look like saltwater walleye to me. So, but they're a pain they're, in the ass. They're, uh, we don't catch. You don't see a lot of people catching them because most of the ones up there, you know, smaller. I know, I know but they, they get bigger. But they tear up your damn plastics. Yeah. I mean, they're so hard on them. Well, it's like puffer fish in Florida. Mm-hmm. It's like they're all over, like in Tampa. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll see them swim around and they'll just freaking bite a lure right in half or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but um, I really enjoy the saltwater game. I. Spent so thousands of hours sitting shark fishing down there, kayaking baits, and that was what I did in my twenties. And so I know you've mentioned you've mentioned Billy Sandifer a couple times. How did that relationship start? Like, how did he, I, I called mean, here him, in Texas? He's a pretty big icon yeah. as far as this, the coast is concerned. Yeah, he passed away about nine years ago, but I called him in like '94, and I said. I am physically capable of fishing. I can throw into the wind. I have all the shark gear, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I want to catch some sharks. And he said, I told him what dates I wanted. He goes, bring your notebook, and he hung the freaking phone up on me. The dude was a maniac. He was so fun. Probably one of the greatest naturalists that Texas has ever seen, and no one, he just didn't give a shit about people knowing he he existed. He was a, such an odd guy, and in a great way. And I went fishing with him, and I literally brought notes. And he said, oh, you brought a notebook. Okay. 
he took the leader and he said, you do this. You do, I, I have the original notes. I wrote down exactly how he tied them. You do this kind of knot because when you're making the 400-pound run, you make a 400-pound, 10-foot-long runner for the weight to slide on, and then you've got six foot of steel on the backside with a clip on it. So if you get a shark, you can unclip him, and then you got the shark, and you got the hook in him and get the hook out of him or cut mm -hmm. it off. There was all these details. Then he drove us down the beach and said, okay, here's why you would fish here. There's that, that, that. See the bar, da, 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 da. And he walked us out there and literally stood there and said, you're fishing here because of this and that and the other. And he said, get in the kayak, go paddle out to the second bar and stand on it and look at it. And I paddled out in the kayak, and his kayak stood on the bar, you know, nut deep. But behind me was eight feet deep in the gut. Yeah. Out in the second. All these details. <coughs> so over time, he was incapable of having kids. And he says, probably God, because he decided to just kill the child. I would have just killed it and buried it at the National Seashore. There's no way I would have made it. I'm not practical dad. So I, was, I became one of his kids. Hmm. He used to write me these handwritten letters about things he was thinking about. It wasn't always fishing. And he would sign him dad. <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, man? it was awesome. So I started just fishing with him. He said, I'm going scouting. You want to go? Yeah. And we've just gone on the beach and screw around. Yeah. And so I ended up going to his house and sitting around and just talking about life. Some of the crap he'd been through at Nam, four tours at Nam. And we just became fast friends. Like I said, I was one of his kids. There was three of us. He considered his kids. And... We just had, he was such a great resource life-wise, and he said some really crazy crap, which was freaking hilarious. I'm convinced that 90% of the people charted Billy Sandiford, they hear him say crazy shit. All the, he would just Did it rub say, off on you any? Oh, no. I never <laughs> say crazy stuff that's very direct. And I told him one time, we were screwing around down there, we were trot fishing, and he was coughing or something. And he smoked like crazy. And he would, sometimes he'd have nicotine patch and a dip and smoking. He was crazy. And I said, uh, he said, I think I, <coughs> he's coughing. I said, well, you got emphysema. Your chest is all sunken in, belly sticking out. He said, son of a bitch, I got a roofing hatchet. I'm about to cut you into nine pieces and bury you where no one can find you. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. He goes, oh, it could happen. But we just became fast friends, and he was a wealth of information on that ecosystem mm -hmm. and the way the whole ecosystem worked. Bay, surf, and everybody said he was, he was once, once again, confirmation bias. The fishing guys wanted to believe what they wanted to believe, and Billy believed what was in front of him. He yeah. said, you go trout fishing, and he said, you decide what you're going to do and let the fish tell you. That sounds like it, what everybody thinks. It is not true. People get, you get stuck. I like plastic. I mean, that day they're, well, they want a Miradine or something, right? Although just to prove that he was Billy Sandifer, he got in the truck with me one time. After he retired, I would take him. Yeah. I'd drive up in my truck. He'd get in my truck, bring his crap, and he goes. One day he goes, if they won't eat a top water to hell with them. And five minutes later, he goes, of course, you got everything else, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he had four topwaters in a plastic box. And supposedly he was going to, he did throw them all day because it, it wasn't a good day of fishing. But he's like, you got everything. Right. You know, he knew I had plastics and spoons and all that stuff. I'm trying to remember. I met him one time, you know, mm -hmm. a long time ago. And um, 
I just remember how iconic the picture of him is just in his mm -hmm. beach garb. And, and he his, was at a CCA look. event when they were first. <clears throat> There's still a great debate over the croaker thing. He wouldn't fish with a croaker. He, th he believed that removing the croakers from the ecosystem disrupted the ecosystem and it was not worth killing all the trout with croakers because you tend to hook them bad and removing that much biomass. He was worried about the biomass more than he was worried about killing the fish. Yeah. But he said the guides are killing all the juvenile trout, foul hooking them and stuff on croakers, and there's a bunch of injured fish out there. And then secondarily, he, he believed that the biomass, that much biomass being removed, messed with things. You're playing God kind of. He was at a CCA event with all these high roller knuckleheads. And they were debating it, the croaker thing, and it was getting hot. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, hey, Billy, what do you think about throwing a croaker? And he said, I'd rather eat a spoonful of shit than fish with a freaking croaker. And he walked out. That was Billy Sandifer. It was, they said it was totally silent in there. Because everybody's worried that he was carrying a knife and a gun and he would just decide that somebody needed to die. <laughs> he, was, he was a complete maniac. But he, I don't know that he was wrong. You can't disprove, you can't prove it. Yeah, right? it's a big, it's, it's a huge debate and it'll probably never go away um, unless something changes Well, the limits legally, went down, but, so that solved it. Yeah, well. Yeah. But I mean... I mean, I've noticed just since I've been down here, you know, just everybody always talked about the great croaker runs in the fall. Not anymore. You don't see them. I used to catch, I used to catch, you know, 18, 19 inch croakers when I was a kid. It was common in the summer. Just throw it out in the ditch and you'd catch croakers. Doesn't happen anymore. Once again, he's, he was processing the biomass thing. Yeah. He just believed he didn't need to punish. And there's no shortage of croaker. They're just being harvested by shrimpers for right. the purpose of bait so right. much um i just don't think they're they're just not growing to the size that they're capable of right in numbers that are catchable now right and um I and had, they're so good to eat they are good mm -hmm. i mean um but i don't know i mean there's so, there's so many um crazy topics you know and, and people <coughs> like billy and this whole thing about common sense and stuff like that it's just like we got to cherish those people who bring these ideas mm -hmm. forward and, and, and not being what's shoved in our face. I'm glad he social. got they got enough articles out and all that stuff. I wish we would have he wouldn't have done podcasting and all that. Just not his deal. But it would have been nice for him to just ramble. That's what we're doing with Ed right now. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get Ed on every. You need to call Ed. I want to get Ed on every electronic format. He's, he's just an older guy. Yeah. He's not going to be here one day, and all those stories are going to be lost. And all of his knowledge. And he's one of the most humble people. On the, in the archery business, if there's a guy who should stand on his soapbox and tell everybody they're a bunch of idiots, it should be Ed. Because he did 30 years of testing. He, before carbon arrows, he killed two rhinos with a bow. Mm -hmm. All he did was study maximum lethality. And everybody thinks he's an idiot. And we need to get, we have the ability now to get him memorialized. Right. Electronically. Yeah. I'm trying to get every podcaster on earth to call in. And just have him tell stories about the old days and yeah. going around Zimbabwe when there was no laws and dudes come rolling out of the brush with AK-47s to have a chat. 
<laughs> the stories he's got are phenomenal. He's a big, he was a dangerous game guide with guns. We have, in the foundation, we have his 500 Nitro. Mm. And it's the only big game, dangerous game rifle I've ever seen that's worn. So it's in perfect working order. The action is like a Swiss clock. It's a CRC side-by-side. Okay. You, shoot, you always shoot two triggers for dangerous game because if, if the trigger fails, you're dead. Yep. And under the handle, under the action, the blue wing's gone. And on the muzzle from the guys, the gun bearers, carrying it over their shoulder, the blue wing is gone. That's how many hours, thousands of hours. It's not dinged up. It doesn't look like it's been dragged down a road. But you can just tell. That that damn gun has done some miles, and hundreds and has hundreds. lots of stories, <laughs> and it has a lot of stories, elephants and everything. And yeah, he was talking to you. Yeah, you shoot a solid, and you shoot a soft point. Front trigger's a solid, you know. Back trigger, I remember what it was. And all those guns, it's just it's a it was wild to hear him and his buddy Bill talk about. When you get one of those rifles, the, the manufacturer zeroes it, and you ask for a zero distance because they mm-hmm. cross. Like the barrels are side by side, so they are going to have a cross point. They can't be straight. And 50 yards is apparently the, the number. Man. You shoot elephants at like 50 yards, 40 yards. You don't shoot them far. Yeah. You wade in there with them. Seeing some of the videos of some of these people hunting these big game animals and stuff, and like that has to be – like one of the most intense moments of their lives. It's, it's not knowing what's going to happen or what right. could be behind that bush. You know, you might think there, there's a lion or something here, yep. and just seeing those elephants and come out. And he got to hunt back when it was wild, wild. You just went yeah. hunting, and you stayed wherever you stayed, and you went hunting. Anything could happen, right? And it's just the reason why he said he shot a hard-nosed bullet in one side and a soft point in the other is that when his client shoots an elephant, if it runs, he wants that hard-nosed bullet. When it's going away. Yeah. He's trying to break the hips on an elephant to slow it down. That's just crazy to think about. Right? And so, but to see that rifle, it's in a a form-fitting case. You slide it out, and you can just tell it's had thousands of hours on it. it, Doing its job. Marching around, chasing big nasties. That's crazy. That's all. That's amazing. So, oh. yeah, I'll get with you so we can figure out how to get get in touch with Ed. Oh, you just call him. On, so He'll I'd act like to, you're his best friend. He's I'd the nicest guy. Hey, Ed, Troy said to call. Hey, man, what's going on? What's your name? <laughs> He's like that. He's the nicest guy ever. And like I said, if there's anybody in the archery industry, you should just say, screw all you people. You don't even, you don't know, you haven't done anything. It's me. He would never, ever do that. That's not how he's wired. He wants to help. Yep. We have three pages of things that he needs us to test because the test isn't over. He hurt himself. I think he fell off a mountain and broke his back or something, and he couldn't keep testing. So the test, the, the tall study ends, and everybody thinks it's like the Bible, like you're done. No. It was still a work in progress, and he couldn't keep going. And we have a 100-square-mile uh, concession in Australia that wants us to come shoot 100 buffaloes and test. But it's a penal colony. I'm not going over there. That place is a human zoo right now. Screw Australia until they calm down, right? Yeah. 
But we were supposed to go, and right before the pandemic hit, we had it lined out, and then it was supposed to be during the pandemic, so we couldn't go. And yeah. it was just – well. Ah, can you imagine getting used to a 500 nitro? Like the, so we would have a test we want to do. We'd have a trailer full of stuff, and you drive around with a 500. We have three 500s, Rob Nielsen S2, and we have Ed's. And I want to get used to the recoil of a 500. <laughs> I want to shoot it so much, I go, yeah, here we go. I'm going to take a step back after this. <laughs> go boom! <laughs> buffalo down, because to do the testing, ideally the buffalo's killed on the spot and then we can test within 30 minutes so the tissues are still mm -hmm. similar because one that's a day old stiffens up and everything they're different yeah oh i want to do that <laughs> i want to say yeah i just i got used to 500 <laughs> <laughs> fire breathing dragon oh my gosh you know um this this has been a lot of fun um we're gonna wrap it up here but um We've got some roundtables we're going to do later, yep. and I think we're going to talk some more fishing. Oh, yes. Can and, we talk about fishing? Uh, with some, uh, some some other awesome people. And um, Can we talk about some of the mistakes that people need to not yeah, Absolutely. Make? Absolutely. Like, you need to back your drags off? Could we just have could – could I have somebody on earth, please, if you only fish once a month, to back your drag and your, and your casting control off every time? <laughs> Can we do something like that because they're compression-based systems, and if you leave them compressed, they don't work? Yeah. Can we just start there, maybe change your line every 15 years? <laughs> That's one of the things I'm obsessive about. I think I have a bad spool of line. Uh, braid versus mono. I'm really not. A, I, I'm fishing with braid. I, I think it's a specific application tool for grass and yanking stuff out of the bushes, but I, I'm not a fan. I fish with it in saltwater right now, and I softened up the fishing rod I fish with. Well, I could go to a stiffer rod and fish with mono, and I think fluorocarbon's overblown. Uh, I just don't. I think maybe for leader material on snook or clear water. Yeah. I've had some friends tell me that fluorocarbon made a difference on snook because they think I, they can see it. I noticed a tremendous difference using it the way I fish on my charters. When we're fishing for sheep's head and stuff that are so finicky. Yes, right. That's an application you know, thing for braid. Exactly. For braid. And fluorocarbon. Oh. And, and um, just because they really, I mean, the difference between, I've tried straight mono leader and fluorocarbon, and hands down, I'll get more bites. 10 times more bites on yeah. fluorocarbon yep. leader. Yep. Like that's application. an application of fluorocarbon, right? Exactly. But all the way to the but spool, I don't, I, I don't I've never know. Understood, I've never understood that. I'm like, what? Using it for mainline basically yeah um, i've had trouble with it it's kind of i haven't had a fluorocarbon that isn't real kinky on the spool and stuff for winding i think it's fine yeah but i can wind with mono yeah i can just like yesterday i caught that one that was six or something pounds on a crankbait well it didn't matter if i was fishing mono i could have been fishing the worst mono on earth he's going to eat that crankbait and get hooked it's a crankbait doesn't matter but i i can't I'm, I'm back and forth on it. I'm, when I go snook fishing this, I'm going to go snook fishing twice this year down south. I'm going to fish mono on a pretty soft rod and a fluorocarbon 40-pound leader because I want the shock absorption. They hit. Have you caught one? Have you? I mean, you've caught them. I've caught snook, yeah. They hit like. They're, they're pissed off, brother. Yeah. There's no tapping or. Dink. I think that might be one. <laughs> Your rod bends. 
And last year I caught them on braid and I shook off about half of them and I'm convinced I was on them too fast. I don't think they had time to eat. Is there just grabbing it, swimming away so Well, fast. on the braid, you mm-hmm. feel them too fast. Mm-hmm. And so you pull. And we talked about this yesterday yep. about setting the hook on, on top water bite with the frog and stuff With like the frog. That. You got to let them eat it. And um, I throw braid for frogs when the grass is real bad because they'll go in the grass and you got to get them out, right? But I prefer mono and I'm probably going to go back to mono. I'm definitely throwing mono at snook. I'm going to throw 14-pound mono. Keep my drag set right. I want them to load. But last year I had, I caught one out of every three I hooked last year on braid on a pretty soft rod. But the hits were like violent. Yeah. And I don't think they had time to eat the stupid lure. I, I just don't. Because I've seen it on crankbaits. Like that rod right there, that soft glass rod that's sitting right next to me. When you crank with those, you, reel, you all of a sudden it gets heavy. And you're like, what? Oh, I've got a fish. Well, he's eating the thing, you know, ah, because the rod just gives it to him and the, and the mono stretches. They can really eat it. Mm-hmm. I missed three yesterday on the crankbait because I, I don't have a glass rod. Yeah. Boom. I mean, that hurt. felt them light Jeez. it up. Well, let's continue this talk later okay. uh, today. Um, but tell everybody real quick, if they do not follow you, where they can follow you, what platforms you put content out on. I'm on Instagram under the Ranch Ferry. I'm on Facebook under Ray Ranch Ferry, but don't bother there because I got a plat, I got a account that only allows five thousand subscribers and five thousand hit, and I just not changing it. I'm sorry. Go to Instagram; it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> and then, if you want to find me, just type in Ranch Ferry into Google. I'm I'm lucky enough to have a unique na- unique enough name that you don't have to dig, and you'll find either my videos, you'll find my store. That's the easiest thing. My biggest platform is YouTube, and I'll be posting a bunch more content. I got new broadheads coming out. This I got a new sharpening gizmo that I just cut, I just signed a deal with a company that's built a just incredible sharpening platform for knives and broadheads. So, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I told my kids I was interviewing the Ranch Ferry at the summit this year. Ferry? I showed him a picture. I was like, that's the Ranch Ferry. Not exactly. That's, the- that's not a fairy, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is. I'm here to tell you he is. So, that's right. That's uh, right. Troy, thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks for and, having me. Uh, and glad to finally meet you. I can't believe we haven't met before before all this um, in the fishing world. Well, you know, we need to go but, uh, fishing. We'll yeah, go fishing. We'll do that. So, All right, bud. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. want to give a huge thanks to Troy for coming out with us at the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit and spending the weekend with us out there. Um, really uh, great to hear all the, the cool stories and, and ideas he has about the, the bow hunting world and, and getting to fish with him some. So looking forward to spending some time with him this summer down here in Galveston. So make sure and check him out on all his channels and uh, go subscribe to his instagram and youtube channel and all that and um can't wait uh, we've got a bunch of cool episodes coming out with the rest of the people we had at the summit this year we've got some awesome round tables coming out so stay tuned for those and we will see you on the next episode